Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, it's the movie that somehow made Brendan Fraser unlikable. This is Airheads. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I'm John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Airheads, which we'll be talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian... How are you doing this week? Oh, interesting times. As we speak, mm. our favorite social media platform, Twitter, is in the middle of decompensating, would be a word you could use. It's coming sure. apart, standing on very shaky legs. Who knows mm-hmm. if it'll stay up, what'll happen to it. But in the midst of all this, it fills me with joy to see my timeline. It's really never been funnier. That's what Twitter is so good at, taking the most ridiculous news, outrageous, dumb, harsh, turning it into pure comedy gold. And right now, since the target is Elon Musk owning Twitter, it's super supercharges the emotional resonance. It's like making jokes about your own tumor. So it's it's beautiful to see. It's sad to think that this might also all be gone soon, but I think we should appreciate what we got and we'll see where we go from here. Yeah, it's a very conflicted feeling. I just want to piggyback on what you were saying because Twitter's uh-huh. pretty important to us. We touched on it a little bit last week before this turned into a full-blown crisis, but Twitter's been a big catalyst for a lot of great things in my life. Just from writing silly jokes and gaining a following, I was able to effectively change my career path, become a comedy writer to some degree. Met you, started a podcast, and we built up a not insubstantial following. Yeah. It's bittersweet to see it fall apart because on one hand, it has rejuvenated my comedic spirit to some degree. Just seeing all this dunking on billionaires is just, it's like candy for me. Yeah. It gives me, gives me a rush. On the other hand, it, it can't go on like this for much longer. You feel like the wheels have to come off sooner rather than later. It's a conflicting feeling. Hopefully Twitter's around by the time this episode drops. I think we're going to try to start a Discord really soon, just so listeners of the show have a place to interact with us and congregate, make suggestions. It's the same type of stuff they would do on Twitter now, but we don't want all that interactivity to go away if the site does. I'll have to start updating the Instagram again. It's been a minute, but we'll do what we have to do to keep getting you guys content. We're in this for the long haul. Yeah, we're not going down. Until the inevitable heat death of the universe. But Ian, now with all that happy business out of the way, what did you happen to watch this week that you wanted to share with the listeners? I'm going to bring in a little callback. In Blastober recently, we covered Last Night in Soho, and that inspired me to go back and watch one of Edgar Wright's classics, Hot Fuzz. I'd seen it at least a couple times before. It's so good. It got me again. A bunch of genuine laugh out loud moments. Just a great movie. Still one of my favorite filmmakers, Edgar Wright. And I wanted to note something about the humor because this is what struck me during this watch. The jokes are great, beautifully executed. But the thing that stood out to me was every one of these characters brings this really clear attitude into each comedy moment. And it related to something that I learned when taking sketch comedy writing class is that every comedy situation has a character with a unique trait and a situation that's unusual and somehow those things spark off each other. But the magic element is like, and how does the character feel about it? It's a slippery concept for me that I sometimes think I can grasp in analyzing stuff or in writing stuff. But I think that's what Edgar Wright is doing, that like every joke is delivered and you just absolutely feel what the character thinks about the thing that they're doing at that time. Like it's super crystal clear what these people are motivated by, what they care about, 
when they deliver a punchline. So it's great. And I watched it a couple weeks ago, but I brought it to this episode because this week's movie is the opposite of that. The characters do things totally randomly. You don't know what they're thinking about or what they're caring about. And that's as a real example in contrast for me, but we're going to have to get into that as the episode goes on. Let's revisit that point a little later because yeah. I mostly disagree with you, except in one major way where I agree with you that I think ultimately aligns us on the movie. Okay. But let's settle a debate right now. Hot Fuzz, his funniest movie? I don't know. Because I didn't think of it as my favorite of his at all, but then just watching it, I was just totally tickled. He had me rolling. So like, I think it is my favorite of his. I'm very, very fond of Hot Fuzz, but I haven't watched it in a few years. And now you've just resurrected some feeling in me to go back and spend some time with it. Because it also, if I remember correctly, it's almost like a horror action movie. Like it plays with a lot of buddy cop tropes, but it has some pretty serious gore, especially towards the end of the movie. Yeah, it has a thrilling horror thread through it. It's a buddy cop send up with a horror thread. He's having fun. I think it might be Simon Pegg's best performance overall, because he has to do a lot of different things as Nicholas Angel. He nails them all. He's so good. And Nick Frost is amazing in it. I think of him as just kind of, okay, he's doing the goofy guy role, but he is so sharp in this. And he has a few big dramatic moments too, towards the end of the movie that he really nails. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't get to show off as much. They have an evolving relationship through this movie, which I guess they do in Shaun of the Dead too, but it's just great in this. And then they kind of flip-flopped in The World's End where Nick Frost played the more straight-laced character and Peg plays the fuck up who's like an arrest development case. Yeah. Less successful movie overall for a lot of reasons, but I only watched that movie once. Yeah, I gotta go back for that. Same here. I guess we're running the Cornetto trilogy and seeing what we find. So I'm gonna talk about a movie that is also hilarious at times and horrifying at times, but certainly more horrifying than Hot Fuzz ever gets. And this is a hard movie to talk about. We debated off air, like what would be the best way to tackle this one because it's a very spoilerable movie and I certainly don't want to give away anything that would lessen a listener's enjoyment of the movie. But I watched Barbarian and I know you did too. I kind of hounded you about it. I braved it. I was scared. We had to do it right after Blastober when our senses are numb to to fright. We've just been fried (laughs) for four weeks, so we have nothing left to lose. But that being said, there were moments in Barbarian that are among the scariest films I can remember watching. I know you know of what I speak, but Uh I can't quite give it away. But also, it's a very funny movie and that's not super surprised because Zach Krager was a member of a very prominent sketch comedy group, The Whitest Kids You Know, which I was a Uh, fan of. Okay. They had a show, they had a prominent on YouTube and like they kind of kickstarted the Funny or Die college humor stuff. They were at the forefront of that. So when I heard he was making a horror movie and I kind of saw the poster and all the marketing materials around it really downplayed any of the comedy in it. So I was a little surprised, but it's a movie that kind of balances the two perfectly and it's hard to talk about in more depth than that (laughs) without giving much away, but it's certainly worth your time. It's a hell of a ride. I would say without spoiling anything, it's really harsh at times and then it gets playful and it's very nice that it knows when it's time to get a little more lighthearted because it gives you a break. I can't deal with a horror movie that's like a torture porn thing that just wants to get darker and darker and, and just fuck you up with stuff like this. This movie fucks you up, but then it's like, okay, we get it. It also can be just a fun roller coaster ride. Right. It's not trying to be a test of endurance. No, it's not Terrifier yes. 2, which is trying to just beat you over the head with gore and violence until you're uh-huh. numb. But I think that makes the scenes where it's really putting the pedal to the gas and trying to be frightening even more effective because you know, yeah. you're know you not just like we said, like your nerves aren't just fried from being scared for two hours. It knows when to hit you with it so that it has the maximum impact. Yeah. And small cast, but great performances. Got to shout out Justin Long for giving one of the most interesting <laughs> performances I can think of in a horror movie recently. Yeah. Um, but with that out of the way, let's talk about Airheads. Let's get into it because this is a movie about the LA rock and roll 
Bowl scene, of which I know you are familiar. Yeah. And what was your familiarity with this movie? Did you remember it? Did you design the poster? Are you, <laughs> you know, a key grip at some point? I don't think I did anything directly on this movie, as far as my memory tells me. I remember seeing the box cover back in the day, probably in my local video store on VHS. I think this movie was timed where it could have been rentable on VHS for a little bit. Absolutely. Um, I guess it never interested me, never brought it home, never watched it. So the whole movie was brand new to me. So we could not have more different relationships to this movie <laughs> because I probably watched this movie a hundred times as a kid. I feel like this comes up a lot. I was a latchkey kid growing up. We keep reviewing movies that I watched a million times as a kid, but me and my sister were latchkey kids. My mom and my stepdad both worked full time. We got out of school about three hours before they got home from work. Okay. So what do you do? You turn on the TV when you get home and you watch a movie. And there weren't that many movies on TV back then, but we had right. a legal scrambled cable box and we could uh-huh. watch the premium cable channel. So HBO was always on and Airheads played, I think, twice a day on HBO for a good couple of years. Because nice. I remember more of this movie than I would have expected. And it was a favorite of mine as a kid, but it's hard to find now. I almost didn't realize it. I'm not sure if I would have put it on the schedule if I had realized that it was on HBO Max a couple months ago. And when it came off HBO Max, there's no Blu-ray of this movie. There's not a lot of pressings on DVD. It's very hard to find on DVD now. It's currently not streaming anywhere, not even to rent, I don't think. Like you can't buy it from Amazon streaming and own it mm. on your device or anything. So this might be a tough one for the listeners to find. And for that, I apologize. But that's why we go through this synopsis with you guys. I know based on the comments on Twitter, a lot of people have fond nostalgic memories of this one. So hopefully they'll remember it well enough to follow along with it. But yeah, yeah, this was a favorite of mine. And I'm not as big a fan of heavy metal now as I was in like my teenage years and early 20s, but I was a fairly large heavy metal fan for many years. This movie, I wouldn't say it got me into that. I credit my older stepbrother, Steve, with getting me into heavy metal, but certainly like getting me into White Zombie and Motorhead and stuff. This movie, I didn't know who Lemmy was the first time I saw this movie. I didn't know who Rob Zombie was. So I sought them out. And yeah, so this movie was pretty formative in my life. Whether or not it holds up, we'll have to get into, but it definitely had an impact on me as a kid. Cool. Yeah, these are always fun. You and I then very different perspectives. You get to reevaluate. I get to evaluate from a great distance because this is one of the older movies that we tackle. We don't go back that far in time usually. So this is like a real look back. Yeah, 94. This movie's almost 30 years old now. So it's dated in a way, but I think it aged pretty well in terms of content. Early 90s comedies are very dicey territory for like objectionable stuff. Yeah, I have to give it that. You know, I'm coming in here and I know you have a lot of love for this movie. I have a lot of anger with this. I have a lot of thoughts (laughs) about this movie. I'm mad at this movie. I got to say that up front. It's probably going to affect my performance. I'm probably not going to give a fair analysis because this movie just, I kept getting mad at it and I didn't want to. I love all the actors and maybe that's more why I was mad. What a fucking cast. Because of the potential (laughs) that I saw that was not well utilized, but. Well, you want me to get into a little bit of the background of the movie so we can start talking about it more in depth? Yeah, for sure. Let's hear how this thing happened. All right. Michael Lehman's movie career had humble beginnings. After getting his start answering phones at Francis Ford Coppola's American Zoetrope production company, Lehman went on to supervise cameras on sets. Do cameras wander off a lot? Seems like a weird job, but I digress. He graduated from the USC School of Cinematic Arts in 1985, and his first big break as a director came when his short film titled Ed's Secret Life, about Mr. Ed's life after his sitcom went off the air, played on SNL and got a good response. Lehman would make his feature film debut in 1988 with Heathers, a critically lauded but commercial unsuccessful dark comedy that is now a huge cult favorite. Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. Lehman's next two movies, 1990's Meet the Applegates and 1991's Hudson Hawk, would also lose money, with Hudson Hawk being considered a pretty large fiasco at the time. His next film would be Airheads, another dark comedy, this time focused on a down-on-their-luck heavy metal band who hold radio station employees in Los Angeles hostage in order to get airplay. 
working from a script by first-time screenwriter Rich Wilkes, Lehman cast up-and-comer Brendan Fraser, known for starring in Encino Man, School Ties, and With Honors in the lead, and rounded out the cast with reliable comedic and character actors like Michael McKean, Steve Buscemi, Judd Nelson, Ernie Hudson, and Joe Mantegna, along with adding in two SNL up-and-comers in Adam Sandler and Chris Farley in key roles. That was awesome. With an $11 million budget secured, filming began in June of 1993 in various locations around Los Angeles, including the famed Whiskey A Go-Go and Fox Plaza. The film was given a late summer release date of August 5th, 1994, joining a crowded slate with lots of high-profile films like new release Claire and Present Danger and past-week holdovers such as The Mask, Forrest Gump, True Lies, The Client, and The Lion King battling for audiences' attention. Everything the light touches are people going to see other movies. This spelled disaster for Airheads as it opened in 10th place with only $1.9 million and subsequently disappeared from the top 10 forever after the first week. It likely wasn't helped by reviews, which were overwhelmingly negative, but the film has developed somewhat of a cult classic reputation in the years since its release. I wonder, you know, you said that about films becoming a cult classic, about a bunch of things now. How much do you think this one has that fan base versus some of the other movies that we covered? I always like to keyword search the movies we're covering to see if there's been any retrospectives written about them recently or any kind of Reddit threads that are popular just discussing it. And there was like a pretty huge Reddit thread from about a month ago with just thousands of upvotes and responses talking about how much everyone loves this movie. Okay. I mean, that's anecdotal because you can't really judge this movie based on metrics like DVD sales and Blu-ray sales and streaming numbers because it's been pulled from everything. And I wonder how much that may have kind of grown its myth, the scarcity of it, like yeah, you know, it's, a little feel a little more special, a little more insular. And it's nostalgic just because you haven't seen it. There are movies that we've covered on here that you loved as a kid that you got on here and said, I retract all my... Talking about you, Evolution. <laughs> yeah, so... You can't have two Venkmans. It was the two Venkmans that doomed that one. But this one, you're saying you, you came back to it after all these years and you still found a lot of love for it. So it's a good sign. I'm going to qualify still having a lot of love for it. I find this movie to be enjoyable. I don't find it to be that funny which is weird because it's ostensibly a comedy, uh -huh. but a lot of the jokes didn't land for me. I certainly didn't laugh out loud a lot. I might've smiled pleasantly, yeah. but it's not a roariously funny movie. But then again, if you look at Lehman's work, he tends to do more satire, uh, like darker comedy, some stuff that's a little edgier. It's got some bite to it. So I think knowing his filmography now, I may have been charitable in my rewatch thinking that some of his weird choices or some of the turns this movie takes are choices rather than just bad filmmaking. So let's dive right into the big problem I have with this movie okay. uh, is that Chaz is a terrible main character. Like he sucks. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hate yeah. that guy. But my charitable reading of it is that Lehman also hates him. And that's kind of the idea. Mm. I don't think he has a lot of charity for these people, but that's really a matter of interpretation. It can go either way. But like Brendan Fraser is an overwhelmingly likable actor. And that's one of his key traits that led him sure. to becoming a star is he's just fun to watch. He's charismatic. You want to be his buddy every time he's on screen. Even now he's older, like in no sudden move. I just was instantly like drawn to him. He has a gravity to him, but yeah. He fucking sucks in this movie. Not like a bad performance, but like a really bad character who's not only written to be obnoxious, but he's also written to be like inconsistent. He's kind of like nothing. He's like the cop said he's not anything. So we don't have to worry that the babysitter ran him over. That's a reference I shouldn't have attempted. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, this character sucks. It doesn't know what it is. It's kind of like
like a cutout of a character. It's like, you know what a rocker guy would be like if he really wanted to make it and he was frustrated. And then they hold this cutout up and they move it through scenes and it acts differently in every scene. And it's like, what's special about this guy? What is he about besides just, oh, rock and roll? And then people gravitate to him because he said, oh, rock and roll. And he had a headband and a leather jacket. It's like, there's kind of nothing there. Yeah. The scene where he's trying to come up with something to say and they're like, what are you going to tell all these people? And he just screams rock and roll. It would have been much better if there was just crickets following that. Like, why are people cheering that? It's asinine. It felt like the movie kind of sold itself out there by embracing that as something brilliant. So that's my issue with how you characterize this movie versus Hot Fuzz earlier is that I feel like almost every other character in this movie, except for Kayla and Chaz, have at least consistent characterization. It might be thin. Uh They might only be two dimensional, but they kind of have a point of view and ambitions or whatever you want to call it, but they stick to it. But then when you're the anchor of your movie, and I'm calling him an anchor because he drags it down, but he also is supposed (laughs) to kind of hold it in place and ground it is so wishy-washy. Like I was actively rooting against him by the end. He keeps snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in these really frustrating ways where like he gets exactly what he wants, but then he turns it down because it's not, you know, exactly what he wants. Those moments are frustrating. We'll get to those. But yeah, I'm totally with you. It's kind of easier. Supporting characters can be more two-dimensional. Pip, the Adam Sandler character, is just a dopey drummer and all he has to do is have a dopey reaction to everything. You just say drummer. I think the rest goes without saying. (laughs) Hey, I was was a drummer back in the day. I Um, thought you were a guitar player. Only later I graduated. Oh, all right. Well, I take it back. (laughs) Took some remedial classes and graduated off the drums. But so, yeah, it's fine if like the station owner is just like a classic greasy guy and the record executive is exactly what you think he is. He has sort of one quality. And the quality is a soul patch. (laughs) Exactly. But that's all you need to know about him. Yeah. Kayla and Chaz need to drive the emotional heart of the movie and they don't. They just have lines that just send them careening in different directions at different times for no reason we can understand. Careening in different directions. Talking about Kayla, that's a dicey. uh, Oh, yikes. Sorry. Well, I'll get into her too. But yeah, yeah, Amy Locaine. Sorry. It's it's an interesting guess. It's hard to like a movie when you're not on board with the hero. Yeah. And so maybe we're not as far apart on our opinion of this movie as we thought we would be because I do think I come away liking it but I like it in spite of Chaz. And I like, as much as I wanted to be charitable, I don't think he was written to be unlikable. I think you can write a character that you personally dislike without making them unlikable. Or maybe he wasn't written. There's a few times where I feel like the script and the direction aren't in Congress with each other in some meaningful ways throughout this movie and in ways I never really noticed before. So I wonder if that's part of it, where Wilkes wrote this guy to be a kind of wild card, hell-raising rock and roller, but then Lehman kind of hated him and neutered him along the way. This is all conjecture. We have no way of knowing, but it just feels out of sync with itself at times. Like you said, there is this charitable reading of it where people call it a dark comedy. You can go, well, let me focus on the dark. Maybe the jokes don't have to land and they're part of the overall sad despair of the characters in this movie who got themselves into a tough position. But then you hold it up to something like Coen Brothers movie, which is like people who get in over their head doing criminal stuff who are maybe not quite smart enough to get themselves back out and then terrible things happen. But this movie is not that. It shies away from every chance to get actually dark. It threatens you, though, maybe it's going to get dark here. There's a guy waving a gun in front of a crowd of cops with their guns drawn, but nothing scary is going to happen. There's another guy in the the air vents with a real machine gun. Something scary could happen. Nothing scary really happens. So it it neuters every chance to actually go dark with the dark comedy, and it neuters every chance to actually go funny with a light comedy, in my opinion. Yeah, even the ending of this movie and kind of the consequences for the main characters or lack thereof, it's very Hollywood. It pulls its punches so hard at the end. It goes real easy on them. Uh, You mentioned him waving a gun in front of a bunch of 
of cops. It was 1994 in LA. I mean, the cops and the community were in perfect harmony. I can't yeah. imagine what would have went wrong. <laughs> Nothing bad could happen. <laughs> All right. You want to start walking through the story so we can start kind of hitting these points individually that we're talking yeah. around? Here we go. A dude named Chaz, played by Brendan Fraser, is in a rock band called the Lone Rangers with his buddies Rex, played by Steve Buscemi, and Pip, played by Adam Sandler. After another fruitless day where Chaz fails to coax a record executive into listening to his demo tape, Chaz's girlfriend Kayla has had enough, and she kicks him out of her apartment. Desperate, the boys decide to sneak into radio station KPPX and play their tape for influential DJ Ian the Shark played by Joe Mantegna. But when things get testy, the guys whip out some toy guns, which they accidentally had brought with them, and they take over the radio station. Do you hate when you bring a bag of fake guns with you? Just forget about it. This movie is, and I'm going to keep coming back to it, is real sweaty. It does a lot of work in the plot in like setting these things up. And you're like, okay, Rex works at a toy store and he collects toy guns and he just came from the store and he had things in his bag. And like, they spent a lot of time making these plot points connect on a logical basis, except none of the characters to me acted like real human beings. When the shit came for, yeah, for a 90 minute comedy, it's got a lot of expositional setup to do in the early leg of this movie. And I was almost impressed with how it pulled it off. I didn't feel like it was too sweaty. You certainly can feel the wheels turning of the script at certain points. And you're like, all right, I see what's happening here. But I don't know. Again, this could be nostalgia talking, but it didn't jump out to me as too ham-fisted. There's nothing wrong. And we've seen comedies, like the best comedies have that much stuff going on. They have all these plots turning and all these setups that pay off later. And this one manages to pay off most of the setups mechanically in the plot. It's just that they're mostly, none of them are really that fun when they pay off. Like Pip's a pool boy. Later, there's a cop who has a vendetta against pool boys. And you're like, okay, they connected that dot. But is it funny? Yes. Am I laughing right. about it? You know, <laughs> you're just checking a box at some point. And I almost give them some credit for checking that box because I feel like, we've watched just as many movies that would leave that hanging mm-hmm. and be like, what the fuck was the whole point? Maybe I'm being too charitable. No, but I got that. I just was happy to me. watch a comedy because we've been watching nothing but serious horror movies and cartel beheadings for the past six weeks. That's true. Yeah. I think we're on the same page there where it's like, it feels like they're patting themselves on the back for having connected all the dots. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't color in anything in between those lines you drew. I don't know if that metaphor well, works, but I tried. I mean, it's You're using crayons in both. You know what I say? It works. I'm Thank with you. you. We have to talk. I mentioned it in the monologue, but the app absolutely fucking stacked cast they got for this movie with an $11 million budget is insane. Let's go through some of the names who pop up in this movie, some in very small parts too. So the main three, Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, Adam Sandler. Buscemi was kind of an established actor at this point, but- Frasier was not. He had done Encino Man and stuff like The Scout, which I was also a big fan of as a kid. School Ties was a big one for him too, but he was not a leading man yet. Adam Sandler, this is pre-Billy Madison, pre-Happy Gilmore. He was an SNL guy, but that's it. Same with Chris Varley. This is pre-Tommy Boy. So they were SNL guys, which is like a certain level of fame, but not necessarily movie star fame. Right. Then you've got, if you're doing a satire of the music industry, you can't cast better than Michael McKean. Yeah. He's got a big role in this. Also, just popped up in Weird. He can't get out of these music industry comedies. He's got a stranglehold on the industry. All-time classic. Judd Nelson, Ernie Hudson, Amy Locaine, who was a bit of a name at the time. Okay. Reggie Cathy. Reggie Cathy's popped up on this podcast a bunch. He's going to be on our Mount Blastmore soon. A young, young David Arquette. I forgot he was in this movie at all. Totally. Michael Richards. Also with a pretty small part. This is during Seinfeld's run. Joe Montaigne, who's maybe his stars, his luster's been a little lost since, but he was definitely a name at the time. He was coming off The Godfather 3 a few years earlier. Okay. He's better in this, I'll say. And then you've got just all these heavy hitter music industry cameos popping up throughout the movie. Yeah. Really put together quite a cast for a comedy here. For pretty light in the ass comedy. 
Yeah, don't forget stuttering John Melendez pops his face up for one second. I would like to forget. Don't tell okay. me I can't forget. <laughs> I'm sorry. What I meant to say was please forget that. <laughs> and Mike Judge also making a big appearance that was... as both Beavis and Butthead. I don't understand yeah. what that was. Random. That was weird. Yeah, what is the reality this movie takes place in? I have a lot of questions now. Yeah, I was like, oh, wait, he's not there in person, right? He's like a- He calls into the station. A fan who calls into the station. I'm like, oh, is this a thing where a fan is doing a Beavis and Butthead impression? And then it turns out it was really- really him. I it's couldn't make heads or tails. Yeah, it was just really yeah, them. Both of them. And uh, like Brendan Fraser seemed embarrassed by the whole sequence. <laughs> Like his performance goes down like three octaves in that one scene because he's just, you see someone right out of frame with a gun to his head, making him fucking say the lines, <laughs> talking to Beavis and Butthead on the phone. All right. So we danced around it. Let's get to Kayla and Chaz and their big, big set piece in this section of the movie because Chaz did his task for the day, which I guess is trying to sneak into a record label. He gets in, but he can't get anyone to take his demo. Yeah. So he goes home, throws all her makeup in the toilet for some reason. We don't see it happen. Happens off screen. I guess he didn't do it on purpose. He's like, oh, I told you not to leave it on the, it was like an accident. Yeah. He says, don't leave it on the tank. Don't leave it on the tank. Thank you. And he's kind of flippant about it and she's really pissed. And they get into a big argument. First, he says, I had a good meeting at the record label. She comes down, she digs a little deeper, find out that no, he just snuck in and got kicked out before he could give anyone his demo. And he makes some like pretty benign criticism. It was like, it's not like your job's hard. You just sit in an office all day and drink coffee. And she kicks him in the balls and headbutts him. Yeah. Was that in the script? Was that improvised? Like this was the start of the behavior that you like. I cannot get the motivation for these characters. Because like you said, they're having this kind of fight, but it's not very heated. She's like, why do I have to be the one who gets a day job? Why can't I do my thing and you get the day job? And that's when he tells her, well, your job's easy. You just sitting around and drink coffee. And she absolutely flips on him. Before she says a word, she headbutts him and she doesn't break his nose. But they do a full on like headbutt to the face where he goes back reeling. And then she was He says like, like, ow, my schnauzer. Or something. I swear he does. I'm not making that up. There's some lines that I wasn't sure it was because. Because we, maybe we may have watched a TV censored version. He says some really weird watered down exclamations at points in this movie, which no one else does. Else no, no. Like curse words. The, the ADR matches up. So okay. yeah, why would they censor him and not everyone else? Maybe his yeah. agent was like, we don't want you swearing, trying to make you into a leading man or something. Because yeah, Buscemi's over there cursing up a storm. Reggie Cathy's yeah. cursing up a storm. It makes the character even more weird because he calls the guy a, a penis and he calls him a, a dingle butt or something. Like all of these like hot moments <laughs> where he's using weird, silly words. He calls a group of people femmes, which I was like, oh, that's not great. You know, that's the one of the few lines that it has aged really poorly. But when Kayla walks in and starts getting like a little annoyed with him, I'm like, she's making a lot of valid points. Yeah. But then she just fucking flips the shit. And I was like, well, both these people need to be in like an institution because they're just also let's throw the whole idea about a single income Los Angeles apartment on the third floor right out the window because no shot there have that apartment on whatever she's making at her office job. Yeah, there's a little bit of Hollywood unrealism and there's unrealistic things throughout, which are fine in a comedy that's lighthearted, but the filmmakers fail to distinguish when you need to actually have some hooks into grounded elements. And there's kind of nothing grounded in this film. I think that's what my problem was with it. So she kicks him out and now he has to move in with his bandmates in the Lone Rangers, which thank God that name gets skewered at every turn in this movie. That's yeah. one of the, the running jokes that really work. But yeah. They looked the part, like they got all grunged up and metaled up. Yeah. Shemi looks pretty convincing as a metal bassist. He was based on Rex Brown from Pantera and he does look eerily like him. Uh, oh, okay. At least 1994 era Rex Brown. They're touring again, which is strange. Half the band is dead. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I wanted to talk about, so it, what didn't get into the synopsis was so they go to a rock show, they see a band and then they have this moment that's to me was pretty clunky plot machinations where they go, hey, the band on stage 
Page got a record deal because they got played on the radio. We should try to get played on the radio. And it's like, okay, but you just had a scene where the guy was telling his girlfriend that every day he tries to go out and get this tape to club owners, managers, a record executives. And you want me to believe that they never thought of a radio station before, like until <laughs> they were at this show? They're in the music industry. And so radio station, why would you even make that connection? <laughs> you have to actually go to a show and see a DJ get on stage and say, I am the DJ who played this band's record. And then it finally clicked for them. When does Ian sleep? Is he on the air for 15 hours a day and then he's going to shows every night? <laughs> he's, like the a- only, he's the only DJ who works at this station. He's a weird character. Joe Mantegna is fun. But so I also had another problem in that scene. I feel like there's a bunch of comedy in this movie that's trying too hard. It's the kind where you're like, okay, we have a normal scene. We have a certain thing that needs to get done in the scene. But if we make the characters act quirky, it'll be funny. They'll just do funny stuff in the background while they're having a normal conversation. And they make Joe Mantegna do this thing where he's, he's always got a beer in his hand, but he comes off to the side of the stage at the show and there's stuff set up, for, I guess, for the band. It's supposed to be kind of backstage. It's like Aquanet, Hairspray, and Pepto-Bismol. And he picks up a bottle of Pepto and he opens that and he takes a sip and he's looking at the Budweiser in one hand and the Pepto in the other hand and he pours a little Budweiser into the Pepto and he drinks it again. And then his third beat of that joke is he puts both bottles in his mouth and drinks Pepto and beer at the same time. I'm like, why did you just make this normal character into just like a drooling idiot, like putting two bottles in his mouth? Like, what was that? Yeah, it's like the live action equivalent of writing lines for cartoon characters to say off screen just to make like a non-comedic scene comedic. We got to have him do something funny, but we can't can't actually like advance the plot. So just yeah, be silly, be dumb. And like maybe Adam Sandler's character, Pip, you expect him to do dumb stuff in the background, get his finger stuck in a light socket or something. But this is one of the together characters and they just have him mugging, just doing weird shit. And I'm like, okay. Not only is he one of the more together characters, the character of Ian kind of lords his intelligence over a lot of other people in the movie at times. He can be very condescending and very, I don't know how else to say it, but he's the guy who's always like, well, dipshit. If you had a fucking brain cell, you'd know that this is how this works. But then they're drinking Pepto and beer together. So it's like undermining the characterization they've done for the character. Just soft, just soft writing. I wish they would have spent more time getting this right. So then they get into the station through hijinks. Susie right. opens the door into Pip's nose and they get in and they're trying to be friendly to Ian. They waltz into his station while he's on the air, his little booth, yeah. trying to uh, convince him to play. Of course, he tells him to piss off. And uh, then Milo walks in the room and tempers flare and guns come out full of pepper sauce, but nobody else knows that. And they don't come out like, we just want our tape played. They're, they are like, verbally like, I will shoot you in the fucking head if you don't play my tape. <laughs> so it's, there's no mistaking like, and lots of characters try to downplay the trouble they're in. They're like, look, you guys haven't committed any crime yet. It's like, no, you pulled out a fucking gun. Toy or not, like the people you're threatening don't know that. You told them you were going to murder them. There's a lot of crimes being committed right now. Whether they're really in danger or not, you're still uh, like terrorizing people to a pretty severe degree. Yeah, the movie does not reckon with that well. And they kind of had a a way they could have made this work because Rex is the hothead. He's the misanthrope. He's the one who's ready to say, fuck the world. And so he's the one who pulls out the gun first. And if you would have kept him as the lone gunman for a little while and the other guys playing around him, it would have made more sense. But two seconds later, Chaz whips out his gun and is just as aggro and angry and frankly, like psychopathically scary. He's pointing guns at people's foreheads and saying, I'm going to fucking blow your brains out. So it's, are we supposed to sympathize with that? Are we supposed to have been taken to the point of his frustration with the music industry that we're like, yeah, might have to blow this guy's head off or at least make him believe he's about to be killed, which is, yeah, 
And throughout the movie, even when like alliances start being formed, where Chaz and Rex and Pip start becoming friends with some of the people they're holding hostage, pretty uh-huh. much everyone but Milo, they kind of find some common ground with eventually. Actually, even Milo at some point starts actively helping them. At the end, you know, yeah. Certainly not altruistically. He's going to get a cut of it, but still. But every scene. So let's fast forward a little bit. There's a scene where Rex and Ian kind of start investigating something together and they go into Milo's office to find the stack of easy listening CDs. And even though they're like philosophically aligned in that moment, Rex has a fucking machine gun with his finger on the trigger pointed at Ian the entire time they're like going through the box together. It's like, let your guard down for a minute, man. And the movie really does not grapple with any of that. Like, what are the long-term effects of being held at gunpoint by clearly unhinged people? Is this like a Stockholm Syndrome thing forming? Because, spoiler alert, Pip ends up sleeping with one of the hostages. What's the uh, the ethical ramifications of that? (laughs) No, this movie's not going anywhere close to that. And you're right, it doesn't reckon with that stuff, but it should. It's really dark how threatening these guys are, and yet the movie treats them as funny and as totally acceptable in this world. And no one gives more than a comedic reaction to their real threat of death. I think it, it conflates us knowing that the danger isn't real with the characters in the movie not having to treat the danger like it's real. Yeah. But that's not how it works. As far as they're concerned, they're still on the precipice of death. That sums up that. kind of, yeah, what's missing is that the people don't act like people in this. They don't react to their situations that they seem to be clearly in like real humans. And in comedy, you can have heightened versions of how humans react and their reactions can be larger than life, but we have to recognize their motivations and it's hard to. All right. So let me jump into the middle part of the movie where all those concerns we just had get dealt with in a very mature and satisfying way. And no, I'm kidding, of course. It just continues to get sillier and sillier. Gets worse. But there's some fun stuff in the middle sections. Yeah. Uh, Let's get into it. The Lone Rangers force DJ Ian to play their tape on the air, but the faulty tape machine burns up their only copy. So they try to flee the station, but it's too late. The cops have arrived, and now it's a full-blown hostage situation. The whole drama goes out live on the air, drawing a young rock and roll crowd outside the station who cheer on the guys. The cops send Officer Chris Farley to the Sunset Strip to find Kayla, who has the only other taped copy of the demo. She won't listen to the cop, but she hears Chaz's voice on the radio and comes back to the station. Kayla and Chaz reunite, then break up, then reunite again. But unfortunately, during their fight, they fry the audio console so they can't play the newly returned tape on the air after all. Boy, the fucking journey they go on to play this one <laughs> stupid ass song. What does Kayla throw through the window in this scene? It's like a whole typewriter. What does she throw? I think she throws a little like office chair and lands on Should the not board. Be breaking. And fries it. No offense to Kayla, but she weighs about 110 pounds. I can't imagine <laughs> she flung that chair with enough force to blast through what I assume has to be soundproof strength glass. Exactly. For a DJ booth. Yeah, that should be dual pane glass. A pretty heavy chunks of glass chair probably would have bounced off. The killer from House of Wax has been training her in the art of throwing things because. <laughs> Remember when he threw the pole through a car windshield through someone's head. Paris Hilton's head. But anyway, so let's go through this chronologically. I love jumping around, but that's not yeah, conducive to easy listening. Oh, I did want to shout out the scene where Adam Sandler tries to leave and he has like a game of chicken with the cop where every time he yes. moves, the cop takes a step. And then he starts dancing, but the cop starts just like running towards him. That was a very funny scene to me. Adam Sandler was actually really good in this movie. I think because he had not learned to lean on his screaming man-child shtick as much yet. So he's playing a pretty likable character like 80% of the time. And then he just turns it up 20% of the time. This is a very young Sandler. And he's, as he did, he's playing off his innocence and his cuteness. Like that's always been a part of his comedic arsenal, but that was his main tool at this time. And it works good. He was a charming kid. He was funny. He's cute 
dude is the dopey kid and he's good in that scene. And, I'm, you know, I felt like that cop was doing a full on empty man on him. Like he did the empty yeah. man dance where you <laughs> confront the scary guy from a distance and all of a sudden you realize he's matching you step for step. Also, the cop in that scene, a little tidbit for you, played by none other than Alan Covert, longtime oh. friend of Adam Sandler and Grandma's Boy from the movie Grandma's Boy. Also, we have to note that our good friend and frequent collaborator Haley at Two Saddington on Twitter participated in bullying Alan Covert off Twitter because he kind of oh. sucks as a person. So good for you, Haley. Yeah, we thanks, appreciate Haley. that. But yeah, I guess he was a childhood friend of Sandler, so he's been in almost everything. Okay. Once Sandler had any cachet in the industry, he started getting all these guys' jobs. Yeah. And weirdly, him and Buscemi ended up collaborating like a bajillion times throughout their careers, and this was their first time working together. Okay. That's neat. Buscemi always finds a way to pop up in a fucking weird Sandler movie in some strange <laughs> role in between his critically acclaimed. Yeah, that's a little fun side gig to take on. And then we got Michael Richards in the vents. What did you make? The movie works exactly the same without this entire subplot, right? Except yeah. for getting the real gun into their hands. Which almost doesn't matter. But I think the filmmakers were like, we can only get Joe Montana and Adam Sandler to do so much slapstick in the background of scenes that they're acting in. We need a guy who does only slapstick the entire movie, pure physical humor. And that's what they get out of Michael Richards, who's pretty good at the physicality. So his job is to crawl around through vents and under desks and react to getting shit dumped on him and blowing up in his face. And he gives that performance, but it's kind of like, okay, did it have to be there? I don't know. Maybe that's why he never translated as well to stand-up. His stand-up shows weren't well-regarded because you yeah. can't do all the slapstick on stage. No other reason I could think of that his Nothing. stand-up shows Yeah, it was just probably that. He's fine. Like, he doesn't take away from the movie, I don't think. But no. And it's not like the movie is over long, so there's not much you need to cut for time. But really, it's a pretty inconsequential storyline. But I think you're right that they were just looking for a way to inject some over-the-top silliness into the movie. And he was kind of the guy in 1994 that could do that for you reliably. So I'm mostly fine with it. But if you asked me to talk about this movie from memory before I watched it for the podcast, I could not have told you that the storyline was in it at all. I would have been like, oh yeah, there's these guys and they're in this band and they're trying... Like the Michael Richards thing would have never entered into my brain, which kind of tells you all you need to know about its importance to the movie yeah, overall. Yeah, it kind of doesn't matter. It's a movie about waiting for the end. Unfortunately, that was my feeling of it is like a lot of shit happens, but once they get in the radio station they're just waiting it out that's true and like the movie almost plays with that a little bit with their stalling tactic with their ransom demands being like they're like, right. we just got to come up with some ridiculous shit to buy more time, which almost felt like a meta commentary on the fact that, yeah, we all know we're just building towards an end that that's can't true. happen yet because that's not how movies work. Yeah, the movie is almost self-aware in certain points. And you have a couple other notes about, does it recognize what it just did there? And maybe it did, but that's one of the one of the ways it does. Let's get into one of my chief complaints about this movie. Okay. And listeners will know that this is something that bothers me often. You go back, listen to our Summer of Sam episode. You can listen to our Empire Records episode. You've got these three hard rock dudes. They're just decked out. They've got Exodus, Testament, Cannibal Corpse stickers in their van, oh. posters on the wall of their apartment. They're super into Motorhead. And, and then they take over the radio station, play whatever they want in the air. And what do they play? The first song they play is a four non-blondes cover of an early Van Halen song. Like a very <laughs> poppy Van Halen song. Just fuck, come on. You could not get a better <laughs> song than that. It really undermines. I also like the threatening nature of the guys because the song is not heavy metal whatsoever. It's not vaguely threatening. Like I don't think there's a fucking minor chord in the whole song. It's a very upbeat. It's got the hot for teacher groove to it and that high speed Van Halen shuffle, which also makes it a really weird choice for a cover and just really weird yeah. in general. I saw a quote, the singer for Four Non Blondes is like, yeah, our drummer had never played a double bass drum shuffle like that before. And they learned it just to do this cover. So the whole thing is kind of manufactured by Hollywood out of- um, Alex Van Halen's kind of the, he's kind of the king of the double bass shuffle, right? Yeah. That's a hard thing to play. Like Four Non Blondes does quite a good job 
at covering an absolutely idiosyncratic Van Halen sounding song. But the whole question is like, why did they do that? And why are these guys into it? They also covered the song almost note for note. Like they didn't do anything to it. So what's the point of making it a cover? And not just the, you still have to play publishing to Van Halen, I'm sure, yeah. to use the cover. Just use the Van Halen song. Weird choices, but we get it why movies get Hollywoodized. They put together a production and then they go, okay, who from our affiliated record label needs to get a song on this album? And that's kind of maybe why the choices get made. Four Non Blondes, that's Linda Perry too, right? We talked about her last that's week. Them. Did we? Yeah, we did. Because she looked, no, she looked like Rose the Hat, I said. Oh, okay. A couple of weeks back. She doesn't sing this song, but okay. she is the lead singer. Of, that's not her singing this, I, I don't think. I couldn't tell because it's like a Van Halen tribute band. It could, you, have yeah, listen, it could, you have to listen closely. No, it's not that. I guess it could be her singing it. Yeah, I didn't listen to the... Oh, she was born in Springfield, Mass. My wife was born in Springfield, Mass. Oh, look at that. Big up Springfield. I digress. But yeah, super strange song choice. But just, again, it's nitpicky, but also I feel like it, it takes me out of the movie. And if you're trying to make a movie about heavy metal dudes in 1994, you should get the details right. Casual audiences maybe don't care, but you have to assume some heavy metal fans are going to go see your movie about heavy metal and you're going to alienate them with stuff like that. It brings to mind that there's another thread or a feeling that you get watching this whole movie for the first time, at least for me, is like the movie is hiding the ball on their music the whole time, right? Yes. The whole movie is about finding a tape because like, oh, we can't play it. And then it keeps getting destroyed and being unable to play it. So you never hear them and they don't do what you might do in a movie about a band, which is like start off early on at a rehearsal or a show or something and show exactly what kind of fan this is and whether we should think they're talented or awesome or bad and sucky and ridiculous. Like we don't know how to feel about them because the movie is keeping it behind its back the whole time and really building up a lot of hype because it keeps playing us a few seconds of the tape and pulling the rug out from under us. But it does leave you with a weird feeling like, does this movie care about music at all? Because it's not really in it until the final two minutes. And actually the only feedback we get on their band that's not from someone in their inner circle is Beavis and Butthead telling us they suck. So that's a good point. our expectations should be like below the ground by the time we actually hear them. And I think the movie fucking cops out by actually having them play a song at the end. How hilarious would it have been if like they get up and they play one note and then it cuts to the credits. That would have been the move, I think. Keep that would have been a mystery. Yeah, that would have been a bold move. That would at least make it mean something because it tugs at you. Like these guys, they're going through a lot to get their demo played and they think they're going to be stars and this crowd is building around. There's all this anticipation. You know, we're not sure if we're supposed to think they're pathetic because obviously they're not going to be stars or if they're amazing because they're going to be the most talented discovery we've ever run into. And you kind of don't know how to feel about them because they keep that close to the vest. Well, I think the movie doesn't want you to have to grapple with that because so much of what happens in this movie is people throwing record deals at them and money and promises of fame because of what they're doing. They're holding these people hostage. They're breaking the law. They're making a big scene. Now, all of a sudden, people want to sign them to a contract. So the music doesn't matter, I think, is the message of the movie. Uh So not having the band play. And when they play, they're pretty good. They're not like amazing, but we'll get into the band that actually inspired them a little bit at the end. Not inspired them. They're covering this band. (laughs) But wouldn't it be smarter if you're trying to drive home the point that it's not actually about the music, it's about the spectacle, to not know what their music sounds like ever. That would have been more Yeah, that would, have been, that would have been super cool. The movie is almost about that because as we'll get to in the third act, Chaz suddenly has some strong opinions at the end that are really annoying at the time, but they do talk about that very issue of, I want to be known for my music versus for the spectacle that I created, which is ironic, but it's somehow just, it's not a satisfying kind of irony the way it plays out in this movie. No, because the movie shies away from it. It's not committed to it. All right, so then we get to meet the cops. The cops are on the scene now, and we're going to get a few cops that have names so that we can identify with them. And first off the bat, Ernie Hudson. Love Ernie Hudson. Great actor. Such a likable guy. And the cop he plays is, I think you put it, 
impossibly good. <laughs> yes. He's just the best cop that's ever lived. Not necessarily most effective at his job, but just like the nicest, most caring, like least shady. Yes. Too good. I'm like, hey, be a little bit harsh here, dude, because he goes out of his way not to capture the hostage takers. It's one thing to be like, okay, I'm going to be a professional about this, de-escalate, use all my hostage negotiation techniques. But at a certain point, two of the three guys with their guns come out of the building, are literally surrounded by cops and could be in a harsher movie. They could be taken out by the snipers, but they could also easily have been tackled by the crowd of cops that they ran into. And it's like, no, please respect these men. Keep your distance. Let's <laughs> let them go back into the building and continue this dangerous hostage situation. I'm like, OK, you could have been a little harsher there, Ernie. I think they know how many guns they have because of Michael Richards at that point. Yeah, maybe if you dug into it, you could go, OK, well, he didn't know and he thought it was more of a risk to the people inside the building to try anything. But still, like the problem I have with it, we've seen Chaz sound like a raving lunatic, like, oh, shit, this guy is absolutely crazy and he's going to kill people. And a better movie, you'd get a scene where Ernie Hudson, because he's a sensitive cop, would have a little connection with Chaz and go, wait a minute, he's not the raving killer that he looks like. I know something that nobody else knows about him. And so that's why he's going to treat him a little bit more special. But he doesn't do that. He drives up onto this parking lot scene already with the presumption that raving killers are fine. I love them. I'm not going to do anything to make them feel bad. We're going to treat them with kid gloves at all times. Well said. There's also the subplot going on in this section about the easy listening station transition, which I kind of mentioned in the scene with Rex and Ian earlier. Right. But interestingly enough, I guess the station KPPX was based on was a real LA rock station, KNAC, right? Yeah. KNAC was legit. That was the station. If you knew some Heshers, they were definitely listening to KNAC and only that station. None of the others were hard enough. And that went off the air about six months after this movie came out. I think it became a Spanish language station, not an easy listening one, but that was kind of okay. you know, a sad case of reality mirroring fiction. But it's a pretty decent B-plot, you know? Yeah, that's actually one of the more grounded things in the movie. Well, you see it coming that the hostages start to become sympathetic to the band, or at least they become antagonistic towards the people who are antagonistic to the band, which is the Michael McKean character, Milo. So there is that turn and there's a good reason. That's kind of fun and grounded, but there's so much else going on in this movie that doesn't really get centered. It's just another thing to know about what's going on in the midst of all this. And it never really gets resolved, except for the fact that none of these people have jobs anymore, so they can dedicate their lives to helping make the Lone Rangers a success once they're out of jail. I guess, or, yeah. Well, they're currently in jail. Good point. Then we get a C-plot, which is Chris Farley on the prowl on the Sunset Strip looking for Kayla. Yeah. He takes us to uh, the Whiskey A Go-Go, or at least the exterior of it, you told me. Yeah, that was the real exterior for the interior concert scenes. That's where White Zombie was playing, right? Yeah, That's happening on a big-ass wide stage with tons of room for the band to run around. The, the stage in the Whiskey is not like that. And how would you know? Back in the day, I played uh, more than a couple shows at the Whiskey. Tidbit. Tidbit. This would have been a few years before this movie, right after high school for me. My band was out there trying to be rock and rollers ourselves, but it was a it was kind of a cynical pay-for-play time on the Sunset Strip hmm. at the time. And we were young kids and wanted to make it in the music business, and that was all we had. So we bought into that for a little while until we burned out. You still get to say you played at the Whiskey, though, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was neat. And the stage was tight as hell. Really small stages here, just basically elbow to elbow. What kind of music did you guys play? We played a weird bastardized version of classic rock that we were into, and we absolutely... Absolutely 
did not fit in on the Sunset Strip at the time. I was going to say, like, in, 90, in the 90s. Yeah. That was hair metal days. So everyone else was wearing spandex pants and blousy silk shirts and had long blow-dried hair. And they could all shred. And we were these kids who could barely play our instruments. It was a real strange thing to see us come up on stage in the midst of all these other bands. All right. But the Chris Farley on the Strip is pretty fun. Chris Farley, he's much like Sandler. I guess maybe his comedic persona wasn't 100% fully formed yet. Or maybe I'm just misremembering. He was never as bombastic in movies as Sandler was Uh because he's mostly pretty subdued in this scene, but he's great. Like he's so charming. I really enjoyed his scenes in this movie because he's not flying off the handle, but he's got that kind of loose cannon energy just beneath the surface. When he finally does unleash it, it's pretty great. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And also we get White Zombie on stage. Feed the Gods, all time great White Zombie song. Maybe my favorite White Zombie song. So I was was super happy to hear it. I always preferred them to Rob Zombie. Okay. He got a little too silly when he became Rob Zombie, when he was digging through the ditches and such. That's the only song I know because I played a bunch of Twisted Metal back in the day on PS2 or oh, whatever Oh, great game. Was. So Love good. Metal. I'm sure you know more human than human, even if you don't know yes, it. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I that, that's that White one. Zombie. Okay. Black Sunshine, I think, was their second biggest song. But yeah, and he faces off with some real tough heavy metal guys, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Watch this movie. They look like they wandered in from the leather club next door. I don't think they look really heavy metal. They look intimidating in their own way, but I don't think they cast who they thought they cast. The casting director snuck somebody in there under the director's nose, but uh, he plays his part well. It's a good, good. good scene. Yeah, and then Chris Farley rips his nipple ring off, which is brutal. See, the movie's at its best when it's not pulling its punches. That's true. They went there a little bit with that one. But then is it also, this was a pretty fraught time for cops and relations in L.A., is the movie kind of soft-footing around the issues of the day? Because it, it references them in weird, ham-fisted ways at times. It is weird because Ernie Hudson is, like we said, super lovable. And Chris Farley's cop is super lovable. He does nothing wrong. He's one of the heroes. Right. He, he fights back eventually after being like physically cornered without any other option. But he's not like an asshole to anybody. He's pretty forgiving of just about everyone. Yeah. People are mean to him at every turn for, I don't want to say for no reason, because, you know, he's wearing a police uniform. But yeah. he certainly didn't do anything personally. But he smiles and takes it 99% of the time. More stuff that they didn't really reckon with. They put it on screen and they nodded to this and that. And keep moving, folks. Nothing to see here. And then Kayla, I'm not sure what more we need to say about Kayla, but it's just more of the same with her and Chaz where their their relationship is just incredibly obnoxious to me. Yeah. You know, they're, they're trying to do like maybe a Sid and Nancy thing where they're toxic for each other, but they're infatuated with each other. So it's constant turmoil and ups and downs, but they just come off as fucking annoying. I would never want to hang out with either of them. I think it's bad writing. I know what you're saying. There's that charitable interpretation that they are just like a mutually annoying couple, which could be fun in itself. But what's really weird is so she is so mad when she kicks him out and then she's still super mad at him. A cop tracked her down on her night out and said, your ex-boyfriend is in trouble. We need your help. And she's like, fuck that and walks away from the cop. And then she hears his voice on the radio two seconds later and is, oh my God, I gotta go help him. What I thought you hated him and you wanted to absolutely ignore every mention of him. And then she's in the car on the way there and she's mad again. I'm coming for you, she says to the camera. I'm like, what? Then as soon as she gets there, she hops out of the car and he says, I'm sorry. And she says, no, you don't have to apologize. I was wrong. I was being a bitch. And then a minute later, he's a dick. And she says, fuck you. I hate you. And then he says, I love you. And they get back together. And all this is compacted into five minutes of the movie, two thirds of the way through. It also seems to indicate that he's never told her he loves her. Yeah. It's kind of sad. Yeah. The way she pressures him into just like saying it out loud kind of sounds like she's been waiting to hear it all the time they've been together. And he said, well, we love each other, but he's never said I love you to her. Right. Which is, why are you still with this guy? (laughs) 
<laughs> at some point, just fucking leave for good. Jeez. What else from the section we have to cover? Oh, I don't know. We talked about so much stuff. Should we try uh, to bring it home? Let's bring it home. Okay. A record executive named Jimmy Wing, played by Judd Nelson, shows up at the station and offers the guys a record deal. But Chaz is disappointed because Jimmy wants to sign them just based on the hype they've generated. He's never even heard the demo. But he tells them his company lawyers will keep them all out of jail. So they go ahead and sign. And then they go outside to do a live concert. Except then Jimmy tells them this is actually for a music video. So they have to lip sync to the demo tape. And that's the last straw. Chaz and the guys tell Jimmy, screw you. And they smash their equipment and start crowd surfing. Later, they're all sentenced to jail for their crimes. But they record a hit album from inside the prison. You smash those beautiful instruments. Yeah, they ask for some exotic instruments and then they trash them. I know Rex asked for a Sonos, but I think he got a Warwick. That looks like a Warwick Corvette oh, okay. to me. It's a gorgeous bass. It's like a $3,000 bass too. <laughs> and that PRS was a pretty penny. Super unfortunate. Yeah. Giant man babies. Can't just be cool for a minute. And then we see Rex in the jail. He's playing a P-Bass. fuck are you doing, man? Yeah, they went classic rock in the jail. Chaz has a Strat and Rex has a P-Bass. They left that cool metal thing they had going on. P-Bass and metal? Yeah, it's not a, it. not a good fit. So I think the prop department fell down on the job on that scene, honestly. Should have been. Like, you guys don't know, most of what me and Ian talk about every day is just guitars and basses. <laughs> like, cool stuff we saw on the internet. <laughs> I send them TikToks about cool guitars and shit all day. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, so, this is right in our wheelhouse, but we're not going to bore everyone with too much more of this. Yeah, so what's the big dramatic scene in this section that we find out Chaz was born Chester and wasn't born in the sewers with a fucking Testament t-shirt on. Like, why is everyone surprised that he was not born a metalhead? Yeah. I like that the movie treats it like it's almost this gotcha moment for a second. And then, of course, no one gives a shit, thankfully. The crowd rallies to his side, but I think they do intend it to be like, uh-oh, is this going to ruin his relationship with Kayla? Wait, is that her name? I, already, I just forgot her name. Most of the way into Kayla, the show. Yeah. Yes. They play it as like the bad cop who we didn't even mention because that's one more plot we didn't need to Yeah, his plot about. really goes hand in hand with the Michael Richards plot, which we already said is pretty unimportant. Yeah. So Anyway, he tries to use this as ammunition and starts calling Chaz Chester in front of her. So they do play it for a moment. Oh, is this going to ruin our relationship? They've been together for years. They're a super tight couple. They have this silly answering machine message that they recorded together like an absolutely loving couple. And yet we find out after all these years and the stuff they've been through together, he's never told her he loves her and he's never told her his real name isn't Chaz Darby. Chaz Darby. And then it's kind of a heartwarming moment for a second where people in the audience talk about how they're dorks too. Yes. Uh, Lemmy, I guess, Including pops Lemmy, up yeah. for a second. He says, what was he? The, uh, like, I was the editor of the school paper, something like that. It's very funny. <laughs> it's very good, Lemmy. I don't, like, Lemmy's not even British. He's, He's like not? from Mordor. Okay. Like, his accent is just too over the top to be like from anywhere except Mordor. You know? <laughs> I would buy that. RIP to a real one. Love Lemmy. Played Rickenbackers too his whole career. Got that great tone. Sorry, I said I wouldn't do this. Uh, that would have been a better choice than the P-Base in the jail scene. Yeah. Another missed have. opportunity. You got Cliff Burton and Lemmy. Those are metal guys. Anyway, this is also the scene where Chaz, a white guy, starts chanting Rodney King at Ernie Hudson's character, who's an African-American because you know, he's played by Ernie Hudson. And then the whole crowd joins in, which is just yeah. weird. It was what real awkward. Say there? That was just bad writing. Like, I knew what they were trying to do, which was Ernie Hudson's character had turned off the power in the station. And this was Chaz's moment to come out, rally the crowd and frighten the cops into conceding to Chaz's demands. And so he does it by getting them to chant Rodney King. But he's like, oh, please stop saying Rodney King. I'll turn the power on. I'll do everything. Like it's sapping his energy somehow. (laughs) It didn't even really make sense. No. Very strange choice. So then the band finally gets their big break. They're going to go on stage and film their music video. 
but then they refuse to lip sync. These fucking guys show them a gift horse. They would never look it in the <laughs> mouth, I swear. Or they would. No, they would look that gift horse in the mouth so hard because they refuse to lip sync for the music video. And at this point, I'm done with their fucking principled stands. I'm like, these guys are annoying chodes and the fucking movie already. <laughs> Stop snatching defeat from the jaws of victory at every turn, please. And it doesn't even make sense. It's one thing, like, if you're going to make them take a principled stand, make it be one that we can go along with. The record guy, Jimmy, is actually very totally strange performance by Jed Nelson, by the way. It's, it's weird. It's fun. I mean, I enjoyed him, but like, he's actually reasonable. It's not like he's saying, you guys, we wrote a song for you and we're just going to use your image and you have to lip sync this song. Like, that would have been a reason to be like, fuck this. Even if we go to jail, right. we're not going to be a boy band for you. But he's not asking them to be the boy band. He flew in a famous Hollywood director and he's like, the film crew is here. The director is literally flying in on a crane with a camera. And it's like, if you do a music video, it's not a live concert. They're two different things. You're doing a music video. So fucking do the video and don't be a chode about it. And everyone's going to hear their song finally. Just They haven't even played the song for anyone. So it's we can't go with them. So it, again, it alienates us from them and makes us seem just dumb. And then they smash their instruments in very uh, mediocre fashion. These gorgeous instruments. Yeah. And they cut to them in jail playing their concert, recording their concert album rather. And we find out, what did they get? Three months in jail? Yeah. They're holding like 10 people at gunpoint for hours and how much money they cost the city of Los Angeles with their weird demands, all the damage incurred. and Yeah. And this, this was without the record company lawyers, right? This is, yeah, they I guess maybe they found a new record company because it doesn't explain how they put this album out in jail, but they turned down Judd Nelson's lawyers who were going to get them scot-free. But it is, a, again, like a soft peddling of there's no darkness in this dark comedy. It all works out fine. Yeah. Like the funnier thing would have been them getting 10 years in jail. By the time they get out, no one remembers them. Something with some edge to it, man. There's nothing with edge in this movie. And then the song they play at the end, though, I kind of like the song, Degenerated, but I also like the band that wrote it and performed it originally, Reagan Youth. Oh, okay. Those are Queens Boys. Nice. Queens, New York stand up from Forest Hills, I believe. They went to the same high school as the Ramones. Cool. I'm not like a huge fan of theirs, but I was familiar with them because, you know, someone's from your hometown makes a big get excited. Sure. And you pointed out, in contrast to all the various types of heavy metal that the band has been associated with throughout the movie, this is a punk band. This is a straight up punk. Not metal guys at all. Yeah. This is a full on punk rock band. Anarchist punk, I believe okay. is what they call themselves. They're hardcore punk, which was the New York version of punk. But yeah, complete 180 on what you would expect this band to sound like. And again, it probably doesn't matter to 80% of the audience, but <laughs> just mind the small details. Yeah. It's like all these things, like you're like, how cool could a movie be if it was actually authentic with all these choices? I think even the people that don't really notice the difference as much as you do would feel the authenticity when it all actually clicks. And you're like, whoa, those guys seem real. That seems like bands I've heard. And it never breaks you out of the illusion like this movie does. All right. So that was Airheads. I think we, we both kind of ended up in the same spot where stuff we liked, but overall kind of a misfire. Yeah. Mainly because of the main character. I could see where as a young man, you were like, I dig this because it's another one of those movies where if you don't look too closely, if you don't think about it too closely, if it's just on when you're home after school, you can have fun with it. It's a bunch of funny actors being silly and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you ask it to be a full-fledged movie that's meaningful and has a hero with a journey, it's just not going to give you that. It's well acted by and large, which helps a lot, I think. You, know, yeah. you can get by on some goodwill just from having great actors saying silly things. But we have to examine movies on a more granular level for the podcast. They don't always hold up. Unfortunately. 
definitely. You want to hear what happened to some of the uh, the key players in this movie after this? Yeah, where'd they go from here besides three months in jail? Let's start with Lehman. Mentioned he did uh, Meet the Applegates and Hudson Hawk. We will certainly have to do Hudson Hawk eventually. That's a pretty famous bomb. Um, yeah, that even one? I knew that. Yeah, one. that seems like just one tier down from Ishtar in terms of like famous bombs. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a, any book that talks about like Hollywood fiascos is going to have a chapter on Hudson Hawk. That will certainly be one of our big episodes. Not 100. We've got that one picked out already, but we'll see. His first actual financial hit was the 1996 rom-com, The Truth About Cats and Dogs. I never saw that. Couldn't tell you much about no, it. Me either. And then he went back to bombs with 1998's My Giant, which was the uh, Billy Crystal and oh, was some famous NBA player. I can't remember his name right now. Yeah. George Murasan, maybe? George Murasan. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. It was based on Crystal and Andre the Giant's friendship. I guess oh, okay. they were friends, which is just a funny little uh, detail. I didn't know that. And then I didn't realize he's the 40 Days and 40 Nights guy. The Josh Hartnett rom-com, that was his second financial hit of Lehman's career, but it was also, critics absolutely hated that movie. And then he had another bomb in 2007 with Because I Said So, which is also his worst reviewed film. It's got only a 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh, and then dang. he made, I really want to see his next movie, but good luck fucking finding it. He made a Zoe Deschanel comedy about dueling cereal restaurants in New Orleans. And yes, I said cereal as in like the breakfast food because New Orleans isn't known for having great food. So you don't want to focus <laughs> no. on any of that. You, know, you just want it to be a cereal thing. What is a cereal restaurant? Is that it's literally a restaurant where they just serve you cereal, like a bowl of cereal. They usually okay. have some rare varieties they might import from other countries or something like that. So they oh. have something a little unique. They are a real thing. Okay. I think Cereal Killers is the famous chain. Like you find them in malls a lot. Okay. Cereal restaurants are sadly a, a real thing. I was uh, even unaware. It is, it is a joke Michael Scott made on The Office once. Okay. <laughs> and apparently there's two of them in New Orleans in the premise of this movie because they're rivals. I think it's supposed to be a Romeo and Juliet thing. Wild. It's called Flakes. It got terrible reviews and made $778. So I got to track this fucking movie down and watch it. That's crazy. Do you, how could you even make? Se- I mean, I think they put it in hard? one theater. Just to, I think if you want to claim it as a tax write off, you have to okay. try to release it to some degree. Okay. So they just did the bare minimum. That was one night's register. Um, he hasn't made a movie since since Flakes. <laughs> Can't imagine why not. I have to see this movie. I'm serious. I will watch it. I don't yeah. think we could do an episode on because no one's going to give a shit. But I will bring it to show and tell one day. Yeah, um, please do. Yeah, he hasn't made a movie since. He keeps shooting down pitches for Heather sequels. Apparently, Winona Ryder really wants to make a sequel, but she wants to do it with him, and he won't do it. So. Oh. He's been very busy as a TV director, though. He's done a bunch of stuff. Like, literally every show you've heard of in the past 10 years, he probably directed at least a few episodes of. But I'll give oh. you the highlights of what he's done. He did all eight episodes of The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window, which I know you watched and enjoyed. Yeah, that was cool. That was good. That was Kristen, so. Kristen Bell. Yeah. It was kind of a comedy, but kind of serious, too. I'm like, yeah, a lot of his movies. Yeah, that was... I thought that show was remarkable in that it worked as both a parody of thrillers and the thriller that it was parodying. Like, it had genuine fear and excitement in it and and a lot of really funny moments whatever role he has in bringing that to the screen i instantly think so much better of him than i do after airheads he also directed a bunch of true blood which is a show i never got into okay. directed a bunch of a californication the david duchovny show and uh, bored to death which was a show i really enjoyed the jason schwartzman zach galifianakis like private eyes in new york yes okay yeah. comedy he was he might have even been like a producer on that but he directed a bunch of episodes and like he's done snowfall which is a show i really enjoy just like every show has a few episodes directed by Michael Lehman lately. So he's probably making a tidy living doing that. He's having a great career. Rich Wilkes, the screenwriter, this was his first movie, okay. but then he would go on to co-write the Jerky Boys movie. Wow. I guess the movie does actually have kind of a plot. I was going to say, does I didn't write a Jerky Boys movie, but- I didn't see it. That's okay. I don't regret not seeing it. Did you have a Jerky Boys phase? I was aware of some of the tapes when there was just tapes going around. I think the Jerky Boys are from Queens too, actually. Okay. <laughs> it's quite a legacy. So yeah, he wrote the Jerky Boys movie and then he did Glory Days, which I've never actually 
heard of. I think okay. it was some kind of college comedy. But then he took a hard right turn into the Vin Diesel business, and he Ooh. was the creator and writer of Triple X. If you remember those, the extreme sports, James Bond, or whatever you want to call them. Certainly interesting films. Not my flavor, but that made him money, right? Like that was a real, had to have, yeah. real deal hit for And people. he gets credit on all these, since he's the creator and not just the screenwriter or whatever, he gets uh, credit for all the movies. I think they're up to four now. Getting a piece of the action. Not that I don't think they were huge successes, but I'm sure he made some money on it. And then he co-wrote The Dirt, the Motley Crue biopic in 2019. Wow. Went back to the heavy metal industry the, yeah. in the Sunset Strip. And then Bulletproof 2, sure, if you say so. It sounds like a movie. Couldn't tell you what it's about or who's <laughs> in it, but he wrote that in 2020. So he's staying relatively busy. Yeah. Counting his Vin Diesel checks. So let's talk about the actors here. Should we start with Amy Locaine or should we finish with Amy Locaine? Oh boy. We didn't mention that. We hinted at that while we talked about what happens to her character, but what happened to her? Let's talk about it. We've got Shay of McTiernan going on here, but a little darker as somebody actually died in this case, whereas McTiernan only plotted to have someone murdered. Or no, he didn't actually plot to have someone murdered. He just had them wiretapped. Maybe that's something. as far as he got. Know. He thought people were plotting against him, so he was wiretapping them. So he was trying to reverse espionage. <laughs> just It's not that serious, man. It's just the movies. But so Amy Locaine, she plays Kayla in this movie. Obviously, she'd been on Melrose Place and had also already played a love interest of Brendan Fraser's back in School Ties in 1992. So they had a previous working relationship. She worked steadily in the 90s. A little more sporadically in the 2000s, but was still getting plenty of work. She is currently serving eight years for aggravated manslaughter after she was involved in a fatal car accident on June 27th, 2010 in Montgomery, New Jersey, which is where she is from and grew up. Her blood alcohol content was 0.23% three times the legal limit. So obviously she deserves some legal recourse for that. But the story gets weirder. She was originally sentenced to three years in prison, which might seem lenient because it is. The minimum is five years recommended by the court for this crime. The original judge, Robert Reed, gave her three years, but never really explained why he was so lenient on her. Could not give adequate reasoning. So she served her time, was released from jail. And in 2006, a New Jersey appeals court re-reviewed the case to see why she was given such a lenient sentence. They couldn't come up with a good reason why. The original judge, Robert Reed, even chimed in and was like, yes, I was too lenient. She should serve an additional six months. But then he was like, but she's also been pretty good since she got out. So let's not make her go back to prison. We'll just add six months to her sentence, but not actually make her serve it. Okay. You know, suspended sentence or whatever they call it in those cases. Hmm. But then, and this is, I never thought appeals courts actually appealed in the other way. I thought they would say, oh, your sentence was too harsh. That's sure. Like I've never heard of an appeals court just kind of unsolicitedly <laughs> just going after somebody and adding more jail time to their sentence. Yeah, but- yoinking you back into jail. That's scary. So then in in 2019, she was sentenced to an additional five years in prison, but that she was free on bail pending an appeal. And then in 2020, she was brought back to jail where she is currently in New Jersey state prison, eligible for release in December, 2024. Damn. Very strange, tragic situation. Obviously we feel for the people that died in the accident. We've, but she's also, she's got kids, just this kind of constant upheaval of her life over this court case she thought was settled must be very disheartening. She argued double jeopardy, but like they said, they weren't reconvicting her. They were just resentencing her for the original conviction. It's a bizarre story. I can't recall hearing anything like this. I'm sure it does happen because our legal system is a fucking disaster, but it's just bizarre and kind of tragic. Yeah. That's freaky and sad. Let's get into another actor from this movie that had nothing bad happen to them in the time since. Brendan Fraser. We all know who Brendan Fraser is, but his career also took some turns. He did this with honors in The Scout, All Three Bombs in 1994. Then his first real big hit was 97's George of the Jungle. Do you remember that movie? That. I remember that movie. I didn't realize that he wasn't already kind of a dude before then, but I guess he just hadn't hit it big. He was a dude, but not like a dude with a capital D, maybe. Yeah. Oh, that sounds sexual. 
But then he took on his most dramatic role yet in 1998 with Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen. Really yes. good movie. Got great reviews. I don't know that it was a moneymaker, but anyway, I think it, it showed people he had some chops. And then he really became an A-lister in 1999 with The Mummy and yeah. then it's 2001 sequel. Very fun movies. Rachel Weisz in those movies was... I think I've mentioned before, but important to me. Okay, sure. Uh, he did more bombs. He had Dudley Do-Right and Monkey Bone. And then he did Bedazzled in 2000, which I thought was a huge hit. I was surprised to find out it wasn't that big of a hit, but it probably okay. made a little bit of money. All right. That was with Elizabeth Hurley, if you recall. And then his career hit a downturn in the back half of the 2000s and the early half of the 2010s. He and his wife divorced in 2007. He got hit with a pretty sizable payment for alimony and child support. He did not dispute the child support, but he did try to say that the alimony was a little excessive. And the judge said, nope, you had to pay it. So he was taking on less prestigious roles, let's say, to pay for that. Okay. Just because kind of like the Nick Cage, John Cusack trap where you owe money. So you're just doing every movie you can find to pay for it and uh, might have diluted his A-list status in Hollywood. But then there was another dark period where he accused Hollywood Foreign Press Association President Philip Burke of sexually assaulting him at an award show in 2003. And when he rebuffed his advances, Burke allegedly moved to kind of hurt his standing in the industry. Uh-huh. Now, Frazier was clear on saying, I don't think he blacklisted me. I don't think the head of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has the power to like get somebody blacklisted from Hollywood, but it probably didn't help his career at the time. Yeah. And to remind people, Hollywood Foreign Press is the group that runs the Golden Globes, correct? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And then he also, he did a lot of his own stunts in these kind of action movies he was doing in his youth and wear and tear caught up to him. He had to have several surgeries. Oh. He gained weight. He wasn't able to do the physical action roles he was known for. He had to do quieter, more dramatic roles, and he wasn't maybe as much of a sure thing in those kind of roles. So all in all kind of led to his career taking a downward turn. But then he popped up on Showtime drama, The Affair in like 2015 and got good reviews for his performance there. Oh, okay. Kind of reminded people he was still around, still acting. And lately we've seen a bit of a resurgence. He was in No Sudden Move. We raved about him when we talked about that movie a little bit. Yeah, that was fun. If you want to hear me rave about him more, I was on Silver Screen Video, one of the two times I guessed it on there talking about No Sudden Move more in depth, and we talk about Frasier quite a bit. He'll be in Aronofsky's The Whale coming up. The trailer just dropped. People are really excited about this movie. It's supposed to be getting awards buzz. Aronofsky's always a toss-up, though. You can never tell if his yes. movies are going to be amazing or just the strangest, most upsetting thing you've ever watched. It's known to upset people. AKA Mother. We'll have to cover Mother one day. He's also going to be in, in Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. If you asked me like two movies that I thought would get you back into the good graces of film Twitter or whatever, like Killers of the Flower Moon and The Whale are probably the two. So he's got some prestige stuff coming down the pipe. Yeah, for sure. That's good prestige. And then he's in Eaton Cohen, no relation to the Cohen brothers, upcoming comedy brothers. Well, that's, that's a confusing, confusing sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. That's not great. Not great. <laughs> I don't feel the need to catch anyone up on Steve Buscemi or Adam Sandler because okay. they've kind of been acting steadily the entire time since this movie came out. That's true. Adam Sandler's, he's probably one of like the 15 most famous people in the world. Yeah. And Steve Buscemi is just, he's Steve Buscemi. Watch Boardwalk Empire if you haven't. He's very good on it. So that's about it. That was Airheads. Did you have anything you wanted to say to kind of wrap up the episode, Ian? At this point, my... My head is full of air. I think I said my piece on why this movie disappointed me. I don't know why. I get irrationally angry with movies where I can't follow the main character, where they don't do something that endears me to them. And this character just left me so cold. I was just I was just mad the whole time. That's fair. That's my main takeaway when I watch this is I still like this movie a decent amount, but I really dislike Jazz Darby and his beleaguered girlfriend, Kayla. So that makes it a hard one to root for. But I'll probably revisit it again in a few years. I wonder if my sister was, uh, she was always with me watching it. I wonder what she's going to think about it if she listens to
listens to this episode. You gotta have the talk with her. Let her know it's maybe not what we remember. But anyway, I'm excited for next week's episode because this is a movie I dearly love and I think I'm still gonna love it. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's Constantine. Yes. John Wick 4 hype is building. So this is perfect timing. We're doing a Keanu Reeves movie and they announced the Constantine 2 is coming. Oh. So people have been clamoring for that for a long time, but unfortunately the first one didn't make any money, so they were never gonna do it. But I think Keanu has raised his status in Hollywood enough in the past few years to make it work. And that's a movie, we talk about how much cult status movies build up. Constantine's got to be right up there on the movies that like, somehow they missed at the box office, but like everyone who sees it is like, this fucking rocks. Because that was my feeling. And I saw Constantine in theaters. I did my part to okay. try to make it a success. My buddy Craig, shout out to Craig. Shout we often Craig. shout him out because he's my movie going friend. And it didn't not make money. Made $230 million against a $100 million budget, but I think it just had a big marketing budget and... The expectations were much higher than what it ended up pulling. Okay, but it's so a, not a forgotten flop, but it was carrying too much baggage. It couldn't achieve escape velocity at that budget. Yeah, kind of like a solo situation or a John Carter. Like, yeah. It's not like nobody went to see it. It just it was too much of an albatross yeah. by the time it got to theaters to make it work. Makes sense. Um, but I'm really curious to hear what you think about it. So I'm excited for next week's episode. That'll be fun. Yeah. I know some listeners have requested it too. We'll be satisfying a few requests in the process. Love to give the people what they want. So for now, you can follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod yeah. until until it all disappears. Why not try while you can? Go type it in, see if Twitter exists. Or you can email us, blastzonepod at gmail.com. Again, I'm going to try to make a Discord sometime soon so we can have all the Blastoids join us in there. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone.